Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Right. Okay. <laughs> for real, for real, though. Right. No, like uh, audio <laughs> podcast opener. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome back to Fireside Breakdowns. We are excited to have Savannah back with us this week as we begin to look at one of the big questions that we've wanted to explore for, well, the entirety of this podcast. Uh, at a listener's request, we are going to be breaking down the relationship between nationalism, Christianity, and Donald Trump. Another easy peasy light, just yeah. no, sort just, of the easy oh. listening equivalent of podcasting. Right. I don't know why we haven't done this the entire time. It's only going to be about a 30 minute episode, right? You guys? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like super simple. Week. So super. simple. We failed. I don't know if you've we listened, Savannah, hard. but we failed really horribly. No. Oh, I cut out references in the podcast of it being a shorter one simply because we failed yeah. it so miserably. Because it be- it's an hour and 15 minutes. Was I not there yeah. to, to rein you guys in? Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and we yeah, didn't even actually... really bunny trail that much. No, but boy, howdy, did we We just didn't just do a good talking. job of being yeah. brief. But that's okay, because you're here this week to keep Mm -hmm. us on track. So this week's topic was brought up by a friend of mine (laughs) recently, Um, and it's it's complicated, but I'll I'll break down what she sent me, what she asked me, and then we'll kind of get into, you know, why we're talking about it. Um, But she asked me, or she said to me, I would love to hear you do an episode on Trumpism slash white nationalism in the church. I feel like the church who I used to love has gone to hell. And that makes me very sad and angry. It just seems like the church's views and stances on topics have really changed since Trump was elected. And now with COVID, I feel like it's all backwards compared to what the church's stance should be, you know? Like, they are brainwashed. And so deep into these right-wing conspiracies and Trump worship that they can't even see right from wrong anymore. So many of my friends have left the church, as have I, because of it. Um, two things before we get too deep into this, this is where I reissue the perennial statement that, um, even though we are going to be talking about Trumpism and very specific subsets of Republicanism in a probably negative light, uh, in this episode, we are not generally (laughs) anti-Republican. There are certain things that we disagree with. 
Um, and a lot of those happen to be embodied by this particular mentality and culture. Uh, I think that's fair to say if, if either of you want to clarify that any further. Yeah, no, that's just, um, I feel like that's important for us to bring up every time we talk about one of these, uh, politically charged topics, whether we're talking about Republicans or Democrats or, or people with white skin or people with brown skin, we are not anti any of those people. We're talking about ideas and perspectives. And that's, that's what we want to discuss. A ringing silence from Savannah. Oh, was I supposed to have an opinion? Hates Republicans. No, I, no, I just, I, don't know. I just wanted to give you the chance. So. Yeah. What they said. Uh, awesome. <laughs> Confidence inspiring Savannah. Um, but the listener in question, um, she, she struck a chord with each of us, um, like, like we said before, Robin and I have wanted to talk about this for a long time. We really couldn't find the right time to do it. So getting a listener request really pushes us over the edge on these complicated topics. So just saying, listeners, mm-hmm. if there's something you want us to talk about, shoot it at us. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and Savannah, as somebody who's relatively new to the podcast, we haven't, we don't have the benefit of having your stated opinions and, and wishes going back almost two years now. Um, Thank God. But is this is this something that you have have thought about yourself? Um, I have thought about it in the context of a few of y'all's other episodes um, because my family is extremely religious, and they're also Trump supporters, and um. Yeah, seeing how they've handled things over the past couple of years, uh, it's more difficult now because I don't speak to them. But I have always questioned the church, quote unquote, the church, the church's opinions about right and wrong. And that goes more. My church was not very political, so it's just seeing um, how my current friends and everyone I grew up with, how they're handling it. And so I haven't seen a mass exodus like this listener seems to have seen uh, from the church. But um, I have been curious to see how people who claim to be for the good can support things that are bad. So that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me, I actually, I left the church um, before Trump, but in the proto-Trump sort of movement that I think set the foundation for Trump being so popular in the church and and why they support him. Um, And this was back in and around the the time of the the fight to legalize gay marriage nationally at the the federal level. And... um, and that's when I started really questioning a lot of what I was hearing from the pulpit, um, and and then and then uh, comparing that to what I was seeing in real life, and just a lot of things just not adding up, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that that's what started my exodus. So I I actually have personally seen that sort of exodus, but I've also seen a lot of people that. I respect and, and value leave the church as well. I don't know if it's so much of a mass exodus, and I don't want to accidentally characterize it as that. Um, I think it's just there are. I th- it's almost as if the 
church, the, the church going population is being, the phrase that comes to mind is tempered um, in that there are certain elements of the church that are being driven out by this particular phase in especially evangelical Christianity. Um, and it has left a more uh, homogenous core. And that particular core seems to share very strong and very particular beliefs um, that sort of creates this um, self-sustaining effect where the church, the remaining church members don't encounter other church goers who think differently than them and cause them to challenge their ideas and their mentalities as much. And therefore they sort of, it reinforces these ideas that they, that the remaining members still hold. So that's something that I've sort of been witnessing and what makes this topic interesting to me. Yeah. Um, very much the same thing, although I would go as far as to say that I have seen a mass exodus and I have seen it in people who are, are roughly my age um, and younger who are old enough to make their own decisions about whether or not they go to church, right? So it's not the the young kids, but it is basically everybody from 17 up. And I'm seeing, because I live in very close proximity to the church that my husband went to his entire life. Um, I live in the city that is the headquarters of one of the largest evangelical denominations in the United States and in the world. Um, I have family who has worked there for 40 years. And so... I have been in the middle of all of this, and this is something that really started not sitting well with me in the 2016 election, and then as we led up to the 2020 election, I really found, um, I really felt compelled to talk about it a lot and to try to break it down and dissect some of the narrative that I was seeing from my friends who I had gone to church with for 20 years, and people that I had known um, for longer than that. And the words that they were saying and the things that they were supporting via this man, and then also still supporting what they considered to be Christian principles. And it just never aligned for me. And I really f- I felt like it was something that had to be called out. And the most telling thing that I got was the, res- the responses to the things that I was saying, because of course, just like any social media conversation, right? Most of the responses you get aren't logical. But there was this sort of mental gymnastics to defend the policies and the programs and the ideas and the words of someone who, in my opinion, was clearly operating in antithesis to the Christian ideal. And so I, for a long time, have wanted to know what on earth the church has to do with Donald Trump and why. Do you know what's interesting is that they talk about uh, the coming of the Antichrist. Um, mm-hmm. And my dad, for the longest time, said that, like, Obama was the Antichrist. Yeah. And I see that, and then I see, like, Trump, and I'm like, hmm, are we sure about this? Are we sure? <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's right. it's been interesting I've, seeing the, the reactions. That was a really strong narrative around here, too, that Obama was oh, the Antichrist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But what's interesting to me, my family, 
got real big into uh, the Left Behind series whenever it was a, like a thing. Dude, they're great books, yeah. though. I'm sorry. They are. They they're traumatized well the hell out of me. I'm not going to lie. I love like, them. They're probably great, but you don't have to apologize for good literature. Like Christian literature can be good literature, and I don't think that's controversial. But like... I got so scared whenever I'd like come home and my mom wasn't there yeah. when I was expecting her to be there and I couldn't <sighs> How see old anybody. Were you, okay? I like Oh, like I was nine, in high school, nine, so yeah. Eleven, somewhere in there. And um <clears throat> and like I would I, I I had a lot of moments of like soul searching, like, why was everybody else raptured but I wasn't? Yeah. What are the odds that the rapture happened when I was walking down the driveway from the bus? Have you been to Crazy. therapy, like, John? Like I don't. That. I don't know if you need to like. I uh, I need to. There's um yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize no until this last year that there's actually a phrase for this mass exodus term um in the church and it's deconstructing. I don't know if y'all know about mm-hmm. the deconstructing yeah. Christianity. Uh, yeah. So I didn't even know that that was a thing. So the yeah, deconstruction are, movement is really big right now. It is, and so there are it's quite so a few. It's so hot people. right now. It is. I personally deconstructed yeah. way before everyone else. So like, wow, you did it before it was cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> unironically, hipster, yeah. hipster deconstructionist. Exactly. All just posers. Posers. I'm the real heathen here. Um, yeah. Right. No, I mean clearly, clearly though, there's a lot. There's a lot to figure out here, mm-hmm. uh, more than we could accomplish in a single episode. So we are going to turn this into a series. And yes. we'll talk about where it's headed at the end of this episode. But before we get into the reason, sorry, but before we get into the reasons this unholy convergence came to be, we want to make sure that everyone is on the same page with the terminology and the concepts that we'll be using a lot in the next few episodes. First up, the church. When this listener listener asked about, excuse me, when this listener asked this question, they spoke about the church in a general and collective sense. This is a pretty common thing, uh, both for people who identify as Christian and for those outside of that religious group. Um, But the reality is that there are more than 200 Christian denominations, organized groups divided by beliefs or practice in the United States, and they definitely do not operate as a whole. So, yeah, in this series, we'll be talking specifically about um, a loosely aligned group of Protestant individuals, churches, and organizations called evangelicals. And the, the term evangelical is an umbrella category. Uh, pretty much anyone who aligns with the core beliefs uh, these groups share, or really anyone who, who wants to, can call his or herself um, an evangelical Christian. You can probably see right now how this has the potential to get very, very complicated um, because unlike Catholics or even some other Protestant denominations who have a centralized authority, evangelicals don't share a common spokesperson. Um, There's no organizing body or institution. It's just a bunch of disparate churches. Um, instead there's, there's these, these, like I said, this constellation of organizations, uh, these institutions, denominations, churches, and then a network of largely conservative spokespersons who seem to speak for the whole, even though there's no such thing as a whole, it doesn't really actually exist. It's, it's kind of like (laughs) if I had to compare it to 
like a, a, a specific like movement in the modern day that a lot of people would know about. It's kind of like Antifa in a way. Solid. <laughs> um, and whereas there's like a, a lot of um, individual groups who share certain common ideologies, uh, but there's no one Antifa head. There's no one uh, like dogma of Antifa if that makes sense. So, oh, somebody has raised a hand. Yes, Savannah. <laughs> I know. I wanted to try that out. Um, yeah. So I wish I had known that we were focusing on the evangelical church because my sections later on um, were going down more of the general church because I talk about Protestant Protestantism. Oh, no, that's totally fine. Okay. Especially when we're talking about nationalism and Christian nationalism. Because Christian nationalism goes beyond the evangelical church. It's just the evangelical church is what has aligned itself with Trump. So we need to talk about all of that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Just making sure. Go ahead. Okay. I'm good. One organization that often comes to the forefront in these discussions of evangelical Christianity is the National Association of Evangelicals, which, according to its website, the NAE is a membership group that provides resources, connections, and influence to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. It is one of the largest groups that represents the movement, with more than 45,000 affiliated churches from 40 denominations, including the World Assemblies of God Fellowship, which is headquartered, like I said, right here in Springfield, Missouri. However, since nearly 100 million Americans align themselves with the label evangelical, even that is far from a centralized institution. The people and organizations that identify with evangelical Christianity generally share four fundamental beliefs outlined most definitively by historian David Bibbington in a 1989 book, um, and they're listed as recognition of the Bible as the ultimate authority, emphasis on the work of Jesus' crucifixion in human salvation, identification with a born-again experience, active participation in reforming society. Ooh, that last one. Oh, this makes me think um, of um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where they're dipping people in the rivers as, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to cause John to break out into song again, but uh, were those evangelicals? Can anyone speak to that? Seems like they are. Um, I mean... I don't know if there was enough real information given, but yeah, maybe. I'm, the fact that they were holding a public bat- baptism at a river... Maybe baptized. Yeah, I mean, how it, I was baptized. Oh. Which we'll have to explore that a little bit more when we start talking about the evangelical church and and where it came from. But I think that you could call that proto-evangelical, right? So, like, technically yeah. they'll fit the definition, but that would have been some sort of a Pentecostal, Southern Pentecostal group, which falls into that that category. That evangelical umbrella. Your list was bringing me through some flashbacks. So, anyway. Many folks will hear this and wonder how it differs from any other Christian affiliation. It sounds a lot like the basic tenets of the religion, generally speaking, but it's the strong emphasis on the born-again conversion and active engagement in social reform that really sets the group apart, the last factor being the most relevant to the conversation we're preparing for on nationalism and Trump. 
In the United States, evangelicalism is generally recognized for its political affiliation with the Republican Party. Since the Ronald Reagan era, voters and organizations identifying as evangelical have overwhelmingly supported Republican presidential candidates. And I can hear these points that Savannah was reading about recognition of the Bible, um, the emphasis of the crucifixion, this identification with the born-again experience, and, and that participation in reforming society. I can hear those as specific, like, sermons that I have memories of that I can vividly picture in my head, not only what church I was in when I heard these points in various terms, but like the pastor that was giving them and the context of the conversation, because they're hammered every single Sunday. One of these is definitely going to be the underlying message, the the through Mm -hmm. line uh, of the sermon. Yeah. Politically, evangelical groups are extremely active in advancing policies and programs that they believe align with a Bible-based perspective. They're anti-abortion, anti-same-sex marriage, and pro-family values positions that they will either bring or restore a Christian foundation to America's laws and practices. Evangelical groups work hard to spread their ideologies in the political sphere, through organizations like Focus on the Family, which was created by evangelical author James Dobson, and lobbying groups like the Faith and Freedom Coalition, which are widely influential and always working behind the scenes to align public policy with an evangelical worldview. The National Association of Evangelicals website reinforces this perspective, clearly outlining the organization's viewpoint on politics by saying, As evangelicals, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ should transform every aspect of the world. It takes coming together to make that happen. And we believe the gospel should transform every aspect of the world, including policymaking. We invite you to consider a broad range of areas in which you can embody faithful action by speaking up to your elected officials. But here's one really interesting thing that we found while we are on Uh, the National Association of Evangelical website. The political positions they seem to be presenting are vague and pretty benign. For example, they advocate for the evacuation of Afghani allies and support for refugees as they resettle in America. They want to extend or make permanent the recent child tax credits to combat child poverty, and they believe that antiquated immigration policies have led to, quote, tragic human cost and must be reformed. That doesn't sound much like the evangelical conservatism that we've seen represented in media over the last six years. In fact, according to the organization's January 2018 Evangelical Leader Survey, and yeah, we said 2018, so peak first Trump presidency, 83% of evangelical leaders who responded to that poll did not believe that evangelicals in America should be identified with the person or policies of Donald Trump. Though they were not required to give any additional comment as part of the survey, 90% of the respondents did include more thoughts, most of which clarified that they didn't think that evangelicals should be identified with any president or political philosophy, but should instead advocate for the policies that best reflected their belief system. So one of the questions we're going to try to answer in this series is, if the leaders of these organizations were opposed to alignment with Trump, why did so many evangelical individuals take on his mantle? We need to lay out the definition 
of the foundation for a few more key terms that will be part of the series on white nationalism in the church. So we'll do that right here. To begin with, what is white nationalism? Merriam-Webster, my favorite dictionary, defines white nationalists as a group of militant white people who espouse white supremacy and advocate enforced racial segregation. In America? Gasp. Say it isn't so. Never heard of such a thing. Right? White nationalism in America goes back to, well, the beginning of America, as our country was built on the labors of enslaved persons. Uh, But unfortunately, this attitude of America is white has been perpetuated by our very own education systems books, as laid out in a fantastic analysis by historian David Iacovone, who has researched over 3,000 school textbooks from pre-Civil War to the 20th century. Slavery and the plight of Black Americans was not even discussed until after the Civil Rights Movement in the later half of the 20th century. The absence of discussion on anything about slavery in the formation of America in our school textbooks means that there were literal centuries of Americans not receiving the full history of how America was created and that centered white stories instead of black experiences. So without getting too far into the weeds of segregation, which our gerrymandering episode discusses more in depth, if you would like to take a listen, um, here are some very brief facts Segregation legally ended in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, then the Voting Rights Act in 1965, then furthermore with the Fair Housing Act in 1968. But is segregation over? I mean, those three facts alone should indicate that perhaps it isn't, because it took three different acts for segregation to be ended. Right. And right-wing extremists don't want it to be over. They don't want it to be over. Yeah. I mean, the question of is segregation over, <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a nuanced question, right? Not that we ever tackle nuanced topics around here. But are we talking about intentional segregation? Are we talking about segregation by the law? Are we talking de facto segregation that's happened from years and years of, of us legally separating society and then the huge gaps in, in wealth and economic power and socioeconomic status and health and... I mean, just it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, but a lot of times and because of the way we talk about segregation and talk about history, segregation is really only viewed as the literal physical separation of uh, white people and black people in public spaces. Yeah, it's the sign above the, the water fountain or right. needing to move to the back of the bus. It, it feels like in the way that we talk about it so often, it has a start date and an end date. And it just is what it is. And it's over with and it's done and we can move on we as a society. We don't talk about it anymore. It's, we're not, we're not supposed to. Either. We, we aren't t- supposed to talk about it because it's supposed to be over. Right. And the only reason it's even a thing anymore is because people keep talking about it. From what I understand. <clears throat> um we've listened, this entire podcast exists to disprove that particular notion. I'm not going to hit that any harder. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I actually went to a storytelling event this last week, shout out to so say we all's vamp event in San Diego, which is awesome. Um, and they have themes where people read stories that they have written. And, um, this theme was kind hearted white folk. 
Um, and so the stories are meant to amplify non-white voices. And it was uh, very eye-opening and hard to hear. But one of the stories that ad- actually educated me on how current white nationalism is still alive and well in America is from um, a professor of history at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. He was a black man who taught history at this university that Stonewall Jackson um, was buried feet from. Um, so, yeah, the college is named for George Washington and Stonewall Jackson, who are two slave owners or who, who were two slave owners. And Lexington didn't have a Martin Luther King Jr. parade on MLK Day. Um, instead, they had Confederate soldiers in the streets to celebrate the slave owners birthdays instead. And yeah. Uh, this professor, his name is TJ cool. Tully, wanted to hold an MLK parade, the first of its kind, in 2017. Um, he received death threats and was offered protection from from the white supremacist who threatened to threatened to kill him for organizing a parade of MLK on MLK Day. Um, the white supremacist believed that the celebration of slave owners on a weekend meant for a civil rights leader should continue to be upheld. And townspeople told this professor that both groups should exist peacefully because that is what MLK would have wanted. Um, the, the, I know John's face kind of takes a, yeah, that was my, my reaction as well. But, um, the pictures the professor, professor shared of the Confederate soldiers on the same streets as the people trying to participate in the first MLK day parade Lexington had ever, ever seen was pretty surreal. Cause that was 2017, you guys. So, um, we're, yeah. and I also want to point out that the white nationalism, irony and celebrating confederacy but anyway can we also um can we just as a nation can we please stop saying what martin luther king jr would want (laughs) yeah uh, as part of a political point because i'm pretty sure that you that the people who say these things don't actually know what he would want. They're just kind-hearted yeah. white folk. People, yeah. Listen, it was uh, y'all should hear these stories. It was great. I, I'm very intrigued, but like, yeah, just like mm, he wanted. He listen. He championed civil disobedience and peaceful protest, like he did. Mm-hmm. But don't get it mixed up here. He was totally for just like after a certain point, just fucking going for it. Right. So like. Don't 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 come here going. Oh, he wanted us to live in peace. Like MLK was not Jesus, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not how he worked. Right. And let's be honest, so. even Jesus flipped some tables, right? So uh, like, right? Yeah, like okay, I'm I'm done. Little soapbox, moving on. Exactly. I didn't set Robin up for success in this ne- next part, and I apologize. I call oh, out. No, you're fine. I call out some episodes, Robin's but I don't have this. the episode numbers or what the specific topics are. Oh, I'm, that's totally fine. Okay, you got it? All right, cool. Yeah. Go ahead. Other examples of white nationalism in recent events include, obviously, the Charlottesville uh, protests um, in which a young woman lost her life after a car was driven into a crowd of protesters who were there to protest the white nationalist protesters that were causing a fuss. Um, the Unite the Right rallies by the Proud Boys and, of course, the January 6th insurrection, which did have close ties to white nationalism. We are not saying that it was only a white nationalist event. We are saying there are white nationalist people there and supporting it. 
Um, if you would like to learn more about these kinds of groups, we do have a whole series on it. Uh, we have uh, several episodes, one of which is uh, our episode on the Boogaloo Boys, which I still cannot say without laughing. I believe that's episode eight. We were brand new to podcasting at that point. Yeah. I think it's called <laughs> Debate Takes and Boogaloo Boys. That's exactly what it's, it's called. Debate Takes and Boogaloo yeah. Boys. It's got a picture of a dude in a Hawaiian shirt on the front. It's easy to find. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, we do have episodes on Antifa and what that is and how it works. So if you just head back in the, the episode list, you'll find those. Yep. Um, to put it bluntly, as we want to do here, America, for all of its proclamations of being a melting pot, um, has a problem with white people. Not all white people, but if you pay attention to the news, way too many. Uh, who strongly believe the identity of America is white and will try to enforce this viewpoint and make others agree with it and accept it through a rallying of militia groups and attempted enforcement of segregation with extremely racist foundations. I mean, there's literally no way segregation cannot be racist. These militia groups, based on the idea of white supremacy, have influenced the societal perspective on race and are responsible for 73% of violent extremist incidents that resulted in death since September 11th, 2001, according to the Government Accountability Office. So much of what I do does not revolve around uh, tracking down ISIS or Al-Qaeda or these other like Hezbollah in America, like most of what my job revolves around is spurred on by these white nationalist extremists in America. That is the primary terrorist threat in the United States right now. We will link in the show notes, a bill that was drafted called the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2019, which lays out specific examples of far-right extremist organizations that induce terror in an attempt to uphold the idea of white nationalism. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, I don't believe that bill passed. Um, I was going to research more about that later, but it doesn't look like it passed. Um yeah. So, but it still has good data. Oh yeah, totally. And they cite all of their data as well. Um, Congressman Booker was on that one. So uh, the next to define is Christian nationalism. So when you think of America, do you think of Christianity or do you think of freedom from religious persecution? I, I actually want to know, like, what do y'all think of? Oh. Uh, oh. Up until like a decade ago, straight up, like America equals Jesus. Interesting. Like seriously, that was that was the 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 mentality that I was raised with. Like, you know, we are a God fearing country. I'm actually quoted in the Springfield News Leader <laughs> from 2000 and like oh. uh, five or six Springer. at some point, somewhere in there. At a see you at the poll rally. Hell yeah. Um, where saying that the separation of church and state is a myth. I can't wait until later so. on you are highlighted to read about that. <clears throat> okay. Robin, what about you? Do oh, you think? I, uh... <laughs> my opinions have since changed. <laughs> I have developed a little bit. Right. 
I think, well, man, see what I the think poll got the best be of a lot all of this. about Sharia law, which is, just means law law. No, sorry. <sighs> bad joke. Continue. I actually never, I never conflated America with Christianity. Me um, probably because I grew up uh, not in a, a church-dominated home. Um, we didn't have a car, so it was really hard to get to church regularly. <laughs> um, so, like, I didn't have that perspective on America. America was like, well, at the time that I grew up, it was pilgrims and Indians and and making buckskin vests out of cub grocery store bags because they were made out of paper, right? Um, so that was never really – that was never really my – all right, interesting because I'm yeah. my experience is different from both of yours, and uh, you'll find out why in a second. Um, so, beginning in the early 1600s, thousands of Puritans fled England and came to the colonies to escape religious persecution from the Catholic Church. Uh, this Protestant movement had begun over a century earlier with Martin Luther's 95 thesis that spoke against the indulgences of the Catholic Church. Now, without going too deep in the splitting of religious sects, because that is a whole other thing. Um, we can all agree that the colonies and eventually the United States of America was a place of refuge for those who could not practice their religion of, of choice without fear of reprisal. This freedom from religious persecution was so important that William Penn penned. Yeah, I used that on purpose. He penned. <laughs> um, made it a foundation of the Pennsylvania Charter in 1701 um, that my ancestor, Valentine Hollingsworth, signed. So I come from a very extremely devout line of Puritans. So go Quakers. Um, my lineage uh, goes back to Valentine Hollingsworth. And so while I was raised very religious, that idea that we came here for freedom of religious persecution was always talked about, always preached about, and that was both in my church that uh, was Presbyterian and um, in my household. So that was my experience. I knew we were Christian, but we came here to be free. So that's interesting. Hmm. Um, and wow. yeah, because I, you know, when I think about it, like it, it just my adult self reflecting, it wasn't a boat full of Buddhists or Muslims that came over. It was a boat full of Christians who didn't want to be told what kind of Christianity to Christian. So they got mad and left. They got kicked out if you look at English history. But um, so like the idea that America wasn't uh, founded, and I put that in heavy quotes because uh, I, I want to take this moment to acknowledge that America was not founded by any white folks who showed up on a boat. Oh, for uh, sure. I was going to write that in was there too. Stolen <laughs> by some white folks who showed up on a boat. Um, but so America was co-opted by Christian people who wanted to do their own Christian thing. So I guess it never occurred to me that like that wouldn't have been a part of their perspective. But they did want to make sure that you could do whatever kind of Christianity you wanted to do. Like I don't think it ever occurred to them that they were building a place where Buddhists or Muslims oh, no. or or Jains or Wiccans, I mean, look what they did to the witches, could build their own kind of religion. It was just like, you can be whatever kind of Christian you want, and we won't tell you what kind you have to be. Well, the charter actually says freedom um, from religious persecution. So that 
he didn't specify Christianity as the religion, and I'm sure that if he had other religions come to him, it would have probably caused some caused some strife. But I don't believe, um, yeah. As it was pinned, it said religion, not Christianity. But you know, right? We'll, we'll you know, we'll never yeah. know. Yeah, cultural perspective. Everything was Christianity at that time. Well, and that's what I was going to say. The reason the two got conflated both at school and, and kind of at the church is that like America is a Christian nation, which I heard all the time, um, was kind of like because the pilgrims were Christian. The Salem witch trials were Christians driving Satan out from the land, right? The uh, the the tribulations of the natives that are squarely the responsibility of the of the of the uh settlers um were because they didn't convert to christianity um like it all got tied back to christianity and the establishment of christianity and growing christianity in the land and this got tied back to like manifest destiny and that the land was granted to us by god and it was our destiny to stretch from coast to coast like it all got tied back to because we are a christian nation you might have heard that the quakers definitely experienced religious persecution inside of america um Oh, back yeah. then. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that this stuff is factually no. correct. I'm saying that this is why uh, why for a very, very long time, um, whenever I thought about like America and especially America's founding, it was about Christianity and not about the freedom from persecution that it actually was about. Right. Yeah. Or part part of <laughs> about in part. Right. So. And, and yeah. throughout that last 300 years, right, America has – the perspective of Americans has grown and morphed to identify more into a land that prides itself on being Christian rather than being that space free from persecution for how you practice your, your religion. Um, according to the Pew Research Center, Christians make up 70.6% of Americans – Unaffiliated folks are 22.8, and then followers of religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam account for 5.9, somewhere around 6%. So while Christians are certainly in the majority, the rights and beliefs of minority religion practicers are also still protected by law. Um, And I put that into quotes because we start getting into the weeds really quickly of the separation of church and state and Um, It makes us want to take a long, hard look at why publicly founded schools, for example, cite the Pledge of Allegiance with one nation under God. Or why it would even... Why the money says, in God we trust. Right. Right. It it leads us to a further discussion on why those things are a part of American national um, official identity. identity. Like, on paper, our identity. Well, and... and it, I was thinking about this while you're talking. Our songs, like our national songs, are all about, uh, like, they all mention God at some point, right? Um, and 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 divine providence, uh, or at least very heavily hint at it, right? Anyway, side note: just the addition of under God, just for you can throw this out at parties and be everybody's favorite. Um, it was added to the pledge in 1954 to help fight public opinion of communism 
communism. I That's love, right. I love propaganda, you guys. But America doesn't know, do propaganda, but it does Robin. So much. Oh, we absolutely fucking do propaganda. <laughs> Just, it's the propaganda of the truth, Savannah. Uh, oh boy. Which I'm pretty sure I've actually heard as well. Yeah. Propaganda um, does not have to be false. It is just a particular sort of communication. You say that because that's your job. <laughs> no, my anyway, job is marketing. Uh, propaganda so America, is completely different. Okay. <laughs> um, speaking of propaganda, <laughs> America has been using religion to influence, influence uh, politics for a very, 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 right. very long time. Basically since the idea of America was a thing. Yeah, it's a thing we do here. Uh, so the idea of Christian nationalism boils down to this mindset that America is a Christian country and that its politics should be determined by Christian ideals. That That is the core truth that Christian nationalism holds on to, because you can be a Christian and you can be a nationalist, but Christian nationalism is that combination of the two, that because America was founded by Christian people it should be determined that it's it's way forward. It's policies, it's laws should be determined by Christian ideals. Um, and so during this kind of Trump phase, we also saw an increase in non-denominational churches, churches that don't necessarily align themselves with any particular uh, religious doctrine that also believed that Trump is or was the only way to get those wholesome Christian values back into politics. These kinds of Christian nationalists held on to a platform of anti-mask, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ uh, policies, the same things that we saw with the particularly active evangelical uh, Christians. And they want, that group of people really wants to see the president of the United States reflect their beliefs and their values in legislation. Which makes total sense. The guy Signs who... The bills. Is the one that is dictating the legislation? Well, it, well, the reason I'm saying that is because people always focus on the president when they ignore the congressmen yeah. and the senators. Oh, I and see I'm like, right, let's yeah. care about one guy that signs the bills into law and not the hundreds <clears throat> of people that actually right, write it. Right. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking that it makes total sense to get Christianity and wholesome Christian values back into uh, <laughs> the White House. By using the guy who was on tape talking about grabbing grabbing women by their genitalia and has divorced three women (laughs) so he can marry the next one and, you know, cusses all the time and talks about people and talks about beating people up and calls women horrible things. And like, this is all on tape. Very strong Christian values. Very strong Christian values reflected in the attitudes and behavior of this man. Yeah. And Um, that's, we'll we'll have to talk about it. We will absolutely have to talk about it at some point. But that was one of the things that I struggled the hardest with. And, um, and one of, one of the things that prevents discourse on that topic is this fundamental belief in the uh, saving power of Jesus Christ through the cross, right? Like, so once you have accepted Jesus into your heart and you have that personal transformational born again experience, anything that you did before is a moot point. And so that's the argument that I was seeing from a lot of people in their uh, defense of Donald Trump and in their defense of this Christian nationalism, that it doesn't matter who you were before, 
because Jesus. And so the second that Trump said that he was a Christian, it was like, he said he had this thing and you can't question somebody's salvation and it's not for you to decide and we're not, in, we're not accounting for that. That's, that is a hallmark, a core of that evangelical perspective. Yes, sir, before you explode. But he was these he was he was doing these things actively in the I time know. frame that he was campaigning Listen, and was president. Wait, did he I pee know. on the people in Russia? Was that during his presidency? Uh, Listen. <laughs> oh, we do have an episode called P tapes. We talked about the P tapes. <laughs> yeah, we have an episode about the P tapes. The st- it, that is here, he, as of the recording of this conversation, technically unverified reporting. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. just going to not no, claim it as okay. fact. No. We're just saying. Allegedly, I'm just saying, all of these things don't make sense. You have to do some incredible mental gymnastics yes. to make this make sense. Um, and I think that goes back to, one, why my friend was so flabbergasted by what she was seeing uh, from the church in this time. And also uh, why this... This is very, very confusing to a lot of people um, in general, in general, not just my friend. Yeah. And I think I think that that is probably what um, a part of what your friend is experiencing is this bleed over between the kind of three groups that we see involved in all of this. You've got your conservatives and your Republicans, and they're not always the same, but sometimes they are. And then you've got Christians who tend to overlap with those other two, but they don't always. And then you've got Trump supporters and that kind of layers over on top of it. And then you've got white supremacists. And and once you get all of those things all jumbled up, it can be really different to separate them out from each other. And it can be uh, very tempting to conflate them all together. And so um, that is another thing that I'm really looking forward to unpacking as we move through this series. Hmm. Um, do y'all mind if I go into my conjecture about, um, yeah, all go right. For it. So I have, while researching all of this, I was seeing connections with the far right extremist groups and Christianity and the military and stuff that none of this is studied and it's not anything that, um, I have facts to support besides my own experiences and I'm just pure anecdotes here. But um, so the wars in the Middle East seem to influence Christian nationalism and conservative ideals immensely. Um, I would need a whole entire episode to unpack the viewpoint based on my time in the Middle East and in the Marine Corps. Um, The military spent 20 years telling their members that Muslims were evil, and there are quite a few members of the far-right extremist groups who seem to be aligned with the military in some way. For example, uh, Jacob Angeli, the QAnon shaman, who was president of the January 6th riots. He was a member of the Navy. uh, Kicked out, but... um, Still, um, the Pentagon is, has invested how many military members participated in the insurrection. Um, there are reports out there about them like seeing like, oh, no, we have people that are supposed to be supporting the nation and they're going to the insurrection. So they started delving into it. Um, personally, I know a senior military member who flew to the Pentagon from San Diego, California, to participate in the January 6th uh, riots. And this one white man was blatantly racist and Christian. And so it's yet another example of the bleed through between white supremacy and far uh, far right extremists and Christians who love Trump. Because, and this is where I see the link, is that if your whole entire mindset um, is that other religions are bad, which is how they sell it in training, is that 
you know, well, back when I went through training, so at least like a decade of people being told Muslims are evil, you know, all of the stuff that has happened to America that is bad, September 11th, all of these wars that are going on is because how evil Muslim people are um, in order for our mental states to be consistent and good, um, we have to accept some sort of irrational thinking in the military to justify being able to kill. There's like this whole entire idea behind um, how people are able to kill. And you have to believe that the the people you're killing are other. And so you have all of these mm-hmm. people in this 20-year-long war in the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, I guess we can count the Air Force, but we have all of these different people um, who have had this <laughs> who have had this training that these people are other, and then they leave the military service, and then they go back to their hometowns, they go back to their churches, and they're like, "Yeah, no, Christianity is the way to go," and they have this deep seated hatred of others who include other religions that are not Christianity, and so I think that that connection has not been studied about military members with all of this hate and discontent and how it I don't think it's been studied at all and at least I can't find anything but I do know that their mental state is held together by the thread that they are that the people that are other are evil and that's how they don't kill themselves for what they've done in war so it is both a necessity and also they're coming back and spreading all these awful things about yeah so again, super mini rant, but that's we've we've talked about the power of othering here mm-hmm. several times, and yeah. it's used politically, it's used in war, and and it is like it is the number one tool for indoctr- indoctrinating um, the new soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen to convince them that what they're doing is not morally reprehensible, um, and it is. There's no, it, I know that. What has been studied is the fact that there's very little to no um, off-ramp for service members when they leave the service. So there's no care taken about their mental state. Um, And this is a broader study about just like how um, like PTSD, depression, um, anxiety, how these disorders are very prevalent in, in former members of the military because once you're out, the post-service attention that you are given um, is very like it's 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 there but it's self-driven you have to go do it yourself and so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of support for these people and part of that should be that sort of de-escalation of of the othering and that that people don't get well i this is a whole separate topic the de-escalation of the othering is why people end up killing themselves when they come back. So if you do all of a sudden not, you do start questioning your morals and ethics about what happened, then you're like, fuck, I'm awful. And then you want to kill yourself. And I have seen many of my friends do that. Um, So you say there should be an off ramp. Well, I worry that an off ramp would actually cause these people to kill themselves. Um, Clearly, there is a very long and difficult process that would have to be analyzed and built around it. I don't think it should be like a week of like, hey, everything we told you was an exaggeration. So you were okay (laughs) with it. They should Um, start with reading Colonel David Grossman's book on killing, as I have continued to tell everyone consistently. I preach that because it it helped. The the gospel of on killing. So 
but yeah, no, it's it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And we're not talking uh, about how it impacts society in America when these people go back to their hometowns and how they spread the othering further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and but you can see the trends across uh, culture lines. You can see how during the Vietnam War and post-Vietnam War, how um, Asian Americans were othered culturally in our society. Mm-hmm. And then how that has happened again with COVID, even though that wasn't a military conflict. Um, and then same with Muslim Americans. You can you can see it in these swells of unpopularity right. uh, for, for these people groups. Yeah. And um, I, it, I think it has a lot to do with that, the way that, that our military members are taught to other people and the way that we other people um, in, in broadcast, right? Like in the way that we cover these conflicts and these, these issues, we saw that. day to day life. Yeah. I mean, it's it's part of our normal interactions and it's why we bring it up so often. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it is just a common practice. It's how we, and, and every country all around the world that has a conflict with another people group, right? Uh, It is how humans are able to rationalize and justify the things that the ways that they engage with other humans. Um, So we will never stop preaching against othering in on this podcast, but uh, there's one more thing that we have to define and we are running over. So we'll go through this pretty quickly, Uh, but we do need to talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about Trumpism. Um, Trumpism has become a popular term for the political movement, the ideologies, the style of governance and the set of mechanisms for acquiring and keeping control of power that are associated with Donald Trump and his political base, the people who follow him and agree with him, both politicians and and non-politicians and everyday folks like you and me. Um, And like the definition of evangelical Christianity, its actual scope is really hard to pin down. In an opinion article for the Wall Street Journal, columnist Daniel Henninger wrote... Uh, Space limitations prevent a full description of what Democrats and the media think Trumpism is. Basically, it's the evil empire, a mortal threat to democracy, truth, and justice. On the right, Trumpism is usually seen as some version of populism associated with myriad grievances, the establishment, the swamp, immigration, globalism. Basically, it's opposition to another evil empire. And Trump himself, in his 2021 CPAC speech, outlined the tenets of his own movement and definitely pointed out that he didn't come up with the name. Um, What it means is great trade deals. It means low taxes and eliminating job-killing regulations. It means strong borders, but people coming into our country based on a system of merit. It means no riots in the streets. It means law enforcement. It means very strong protection for the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. It means support for the forgotten men and women who have been taken advantage of for so many years. Ugh, the irony. It means a strong military and taking care of our vets. We believe in patriotic education and strongly oppose the radical indoctrination of America's youth. We affirm that the Constitution means exactly what it says as written. We believe in standing up to China, shutting down outsourcing, bringing back our factories and supply chains, and ensuring that America, not China, dominates the future of the world. These, he said, are the convictions that define our movement today and must define the Republican Party in the years ahead. Sure sounds like a platform to me. 
Sure do. Right. Uh, although his former national sounds se- like his speechwriters platform. Yeah, exactly. Platform. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so he had some pretty pretty talented speechwriters for a hot minute. Um, his former national security advisor and close personal advisor John Bolton uh, seems to believe that the coherence of the movement, all of those things that he just said, actually has nothing to do with Trump's intentions. He doubts that Trumpism even exists in any meaningful philosophical sense. Uh, because he once said, the man does not have a philosophy, and people can try and draw lines between the dots of his decisions, they will fail. In other words, he says what he thinks is going to be the most advantageous to him at the time, and uh, people will come along afterwards and try to connect the dots and make a pattern, because that is what human brains do. If you ask scholars and political researchers, they'll define Trumpism in a different way. To them, Trumpism is a populist political method that offers nationalistic answers to political, economic, and social problems. These are reflected in policy preferences like immigration restrictionism, trade protectionism, isolationism, and opposition to entitlement reform. According to Jeff Goodwin, NYU professor of sociology, Trumpism is characterized by five key elements, social conservatism, neoliberal capitalism, economic nationalism, nativism, and white nationalism. Another sociologist, Michael Kimmel, offers that Trumpism is not a theory or an ideology. It's an emotion. And the emotion is righteous indignation that the government is screwing us. Kimmel notes that Trump is an interesting character because he channels all that sense of what Kimmel calls aggrieved entitlement a term that he defines as that sense that those benefits to which you believed yourself entitled have been snatched away from you by unseen forces larger and more powerful. You feel yourself to be the heir to a great promise, the American dream, which has turned into an impossible fantasy for the very people who were supposed to inherit it. Exit polling data from 2016 suggests that this idea might might be true. Um, the campaign was successful, the belief in the idea, not the idea itself. Right. Excuse me. <laughs> Let's be very clear. Um, the campaign was successful at mobilizing the white disenfranchised, the lower to working class European Americans who are experiencing growing social inequality and who often have stated opposition to the American political establishment. Yeah. Do you know how um, we have the manic pixie dream girl trope in movies? We should um, have something for the people who feel that they have been disenfranchised and had the American dream taken away from them because we've seen that trope consistently. So I look forward to the movies where um, that gets played out. I think they're called millennials. <gasps> You're one. So don't even try. Uh- no, no, I'm like, dead serious. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, this is not a, te- a jab at millennials. I think yeah. that is like a defining trait of the millennial generation yeah. is this feeling that you were given or you were promised rather these incredible boons from being born in America. And all you had to do was go out and take them mm-hmm. only to find out that this was pretty much impossible. Yeah, I think uh, not to get too far into the weeds, but the difference between these folks who Kimmel is talking about is that they tend to be more in the Gen X and the boomer generation who feel like they had it at one time mm-hmm. and it was taken yeah. from them versus those of us who are millennials who were like, hey, you told us we could be anything we wanted. We could be astronauts. And all we have is student loans. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
that's kind of the difference between the two ideologies. So so we want to reform things and create a space where the people who come after us can have the thing we were told we can have, whereas yeah. they want back the thing that they thought they had in the first place. Well, yeah, and to make it even more like tangible, a lot of these people and the older generations grew up and lived in a time where a single parent on one income could support a family with a house and a car and yes. yearly vacations. And they saw that slowly slipping away from them bit by bit over the years. And that is why they are aggrieved. Yes. Whereas those of us who came after them never had that no. and never thought it was even close to a realistic dream. And are like, well, y'all are the people who made the laws and the rules that caused this to happen. Yeah. What the hell? I'm so excited. We're going to have to pick all of this apart, yeah. too, as we get into this series. And I'm so excited to talk about this because I, I feel very passionately about this particular part of Trumpism. Um, yeah. So we should take a few minutes, though, to talk about where where this series is going because we need to do that. Well, yeah, you have them right there, uh, the three circles of this Venn diagram that seem to have converged in an unholy way to create the environment our listener friend experienced. Over the course of the series, we're going to try to tell the story of how and why they ended up together. We want to explore how evangelicals have gotten so swept up in nationalism and white nationalism specifically. And we're going to look at how that may have primed them for Trumpism when it came along. And then we'll examine how the persona uh, personality excuse me, and policies Trump presented gained such a foothold in evangelical churches, even when the leadership and representative organizations for those churches didn't themselves align with his ideas. Was this a shift? Did a dramatic change take place? Or did we start to see long-held beliefs coming to light? And finally, we want to look at what the present and the future of political activism from evangelicals looks like. Where do we see them making moves now? And for the upcoming elections, are they still supporting Trump and those who aligned with him? Like, we, we got to know. These are the things we're trying to figure out so that you, yeah. dear listeners, can figure them out. But hey, if you already know the answers, if you know the answers to all of these questions and you're like, listen, you don't have to do three more episodes on this. I got you covered. You could tell us at our website firesidebreakdowns.com. Every episode of our show, we've got all of our show notes, we've got links to our socials, and we have an opportunity if you feel so inclined to support us via our Patreon. There you can also shoot us a message, tell us how much you love us or how much you disagree with us. And then finally, there is a link for you to uh, leave us a review. There's a really handy platform that you can just click on and it will take you to all of the relevant options. And that would mean the absolute world to us. That goes really far so in cool. letting people know that our show is valuable um, and that we provide good information. So we would appreciate that more than we could ever express to you. Let's get some good news. Good news. Nice and tidy and I loved it. Um, so I guess I'll take this one. Yeah. Um, we're just literally not making any effort to <laughs> paraphrase this particular article uh, because they did it well themselves. So two years ago, the border town of Laredo, Texas, was bracing for the construction of the towering steel and concrete border wall that threatened to cut off the city, its people, and the environment from its main water source, the Rio Grande. Diligent grassroots efforts by at no border wall underscore LTX 
uh, coalition, a group of veterans, clergy, teachers, students, indigenous leaders, and landowners, um, paved the way for the cancellation of unconstructed border wall contracts. According to environmental nonprofit at Earth Justice, this saved 71 miles of sensitive riverfront land and more than $1 billion in taxpayer funds. This victory allowed the uh, official city of Laredo, which you can find at their Twitter handle, at official city of Laredo, to propose and unanimously greenlight plans for a binational river park, which is set to be developed where the border wall was once proposed to stand. Ambassadors to the U.S. and Mexico, along with city officials from Laredo and Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, are working together to transform their shared river into an ecological restoration project. Um, so this is a very historic effort. Uh, it will span approximately 6.3 miles and focus on strengthening the conservation of the Rio Grande River while creating a community recreation and education space that stands to represent the unique and interconnected relationship between these two border cities. Um, and in case you are unfamiliar with Laredo, a large part of the working population crosses the border every single yes. day to work in Laredo. And the border wall would have absolutely destroyed that and probably destroyed Laredo significantly. Yeah. Um, which is why there was such a pushback on this. Um, also, can I just say, I really hate the fact that it's the Rio Grande River. We're just calling it Big River River. And that hurts me in my soul. It, we can just call it the Rio Grande people. It's fine. It is time to say goodbye. Do you want to sign us off, Robin? Sure. Thank you so much for sitting with us for as long as you have tonight. We're very much looking forward to this series. Uh, you can expect the next several episodes of this podcast to cover these topics with a short break in there, probably for an unscripted episode, because we have so much enjoyed bringing you those. So until we are back again with you next week to talk about this some more, Take care of each other. Bye.